Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Back in 2015, I did a study about what happens to patients when cardiologists flock to their big annual conferences. Because when thousands of healthcare professionals all pile into a convention center, it must have an effect, right? Well, the results surprised me. And it sparked the young Stephen Dubner's interest, too. He asked me to come talk about it on Freakonomics Radio. And in a lot of ways, you can draw a line from that first conversation with Stephen to where we are now. From the Freakonomics Radio Network, welcome to Freakonomics MD. I'm Bapu Jenna. I'm an economist, but I'm also a medical doctor. In each episode, I dissect a fascinating question at the sweet spot between health and economics. Today, when a lot of cardiologists leave town and head to their big annual conference, what happens to the patients who need care? I thought it would be fun to hop in a time machine today and have you listen to that conversation from Freakonomics Radio about the cardiology meeting study. And after that, I want to tell you about some hot off-the-presses research my colleagues and I just published that was inspired by it. So stick around for that. But for now, let's go back to 2015, when this conversation aired on Freakonomics Radio. Remember 2015? Thanks to the pandemic, it actually all feels like a long time ago now. Let's see, 2015, Barack Obama was still president. Welcome to the fourth quarter of my presidency. And the primaries were in full swing. People watched movies in theaters. We just went and made a new dinosaur? Probably not a good idea. Jurassic World broke all box office records in its opening weekend. Bruno Mars's Uptown Funk was pretty hard to avoid any time you found yourself on a packed dance floor at a wedding, which I certainly did. And if you were willing to sell your house, you might have been able to get a ticket to see Hamilton on Broadway. I am not throwing away my shot. As for me, I had recently become a young dad, and my cardiology meeting study had just come out days before my daughter was born. The reason I remember it so clearly was a reporter called me to talk about it when my wife was in labor. And yes, I did make the mistake of stepping out of the room to take that call. Bad move, folks. Bad move. Not too long after that, though, Stephen called me up and he wanted to chat about the study and how it fit into some episodes he was doing on how healthcare is delivered and when it works and doesn't work. 
our healthcare system generates an enormous amount of data, innumerable inputs, innumerable outputs. For us lay people, that can seem like a nightmare. For an economist, it's a dream. For there is a lot to be learned from a clever and robust analysis of all that data. Consider the data collected through Medicare, the government-run program that provides coverage primarily to Americans 65 and older. So anytime a Medicare beneficiary receives any care, whether they see a doctor in, a, in an office or whether they're hospitalized, a claim is filed to Medicare uh, for billing purposes. That's Anupam Jaina. He is an assistant professor of healthcare policy and medicine at Harvard Medical School. But Jaina is not just an MD. He also holds a PhD in economics. That dual training has very much informed the way Jaina thinks about his work. When he was doing his residency, for instance, in internal medicine, a question came to mind. How helpful were the medical procedures being carried out by his elders? And in some instances, it was pretty clear, at least to the residents in training, that a procedure may not have been appropriate for that patient. Jaina also wondered about the differences between doctors in a given hospital. And so that got me thinking, well, what happens to patients when certain doctors aren't around or when let's say, doctors go away to conferences. What happens to their patients uh, during those dates? Yeah, what does happen to patients when doctors go to medical conferences? When the doctor's away, does the patient pay? Let's think about cardiology, heart medicine. Every year, there are two major conferences for cardiologists in the U.S. The American Heart Association Conference, usually held in the fall, and the American College of Cardiology, or ACC conference, typically held early in the year. This year it was in March in San Diego. Nice place to be after a long, cold winter back east. Out of the 30,000-plus cardiologists in the U.S., more than 7,000 of them are estimated to be at each of these two meetings. So it's not a small number of cardiologists uh, that attend, and the purpose is to present new research findings, to hear about old research findings, to recertify to get more information about what's up to date in the field. Jaina thought he knew what might happen to heart patients during these conferences. There have been a number of studies, he says, about what happens to hospital patients during off-peak hours. So if you're hospitalized after midnight, or if you're hospitalized on the weekend, as a patient, do you have worse outcomes? And the answer in most studies has actually been yes. Not all, but most studies find that patients receive... That you have worse outcomes, yes? Exactly. Worse outcomes if you're hospitalized during off hours. Okay. And so that was kind of a, a natural stepping stone to say, well, what happens if you're a patient and you happen to be hospitalized with a really acute condition when cardiologists are out of town at a national meeting? To answer that question, Jaina, along with three co-authors, Vinay Prasad, Dana Goldman, and John Romley, turned to the Medicare data. So when a Medicare beneficiary dies, that information is also reported back to Medicare. And what that kind of information allows us to do is to say, when are they hospitalized? Meaning, what date are they hospitalized? And what happens to you after you leave the hospital? Do you go to a skilled nursing facility? Uh, do you go home? Do you make it past 30 days? Are you dead within 30 days? So all of that information is available for researchers to analyze. They began to overlay patient data with the dates of the cardiology conferences, covering a 10-year stretch. They looked at patients admitted during those conferences and, for comparison's sake, patients admitted in the three weeks before and after those conferences. 
they narrowed their analysis to the patients who were in really bad shape. The idea is we want to pick conditions where a patient doesn't choose to not come to the hospital because their particular doctor is away or because they have some knowledge that cardiologists are away during this time. And so we wanted to pick three really acute conditions. Uh, the first was cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest is a condition where your heart stops beating completely. Whoops. Hang on, hang on one second. Let me just say, we were speaking to Jaina back in February. I was in New York, and he was in Boston, which had just been hit by yet another monster snowstorm. Hang on one second. I was hearing some background sound like a truck or something. Yeah, there was a snowplow that just went by. You may hear a few more snowplows before this conversation is over. Okay, back to Dr. Jaina and cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest is a condition where your heart stops beating. It's not a condition that someone chooses to have. It just happens to you. Uh, by definition, you die and you're brought back to life. So it is the most acute thing that you can imagine happening to you. Jaina and his colleagues also looked at heart failure. And heart failure, as you might know, comes in a number of varieties. But we looked at patients who have really severe heart failure. So to, to give you a sense of the numbers involved, about 30% of these patients are not alive within 30 days of hospitalization. So it's a pretty acute uh, condition and high mortality condition. And the last condition that we looked at was heart attack. Uh, the medical term is acute myocardial infarction, but it's basically when one, of the, one or more of the arteries that supply your heart has an acute blockage, and so blood doesn't go to your heart. And again, the same kind of mortality rates, 30% mortality almost at about 30 days. The Medicare data covered tens of thousands of hospitalizations for these three conditions over the 10 years' worth of annual cardiology meetings. It's about as close to a randomized controlled trial as you could ever hope to get. Uh, these patients are nearly identical on meeting and non-meeting dates. They're the same age, the same sex, the same race. We look at 10 different chronic conditions that they have. They have identical percentages of each one of them. So they're basically the same. So... What did Jaina and his colleagues find? How did the cardiologist's absence affect patient outcomes? We just assumed that the decreased availability of doctors would imply that outcomes would be worse. And that was our initial hypothesis. But what we found was the opposite. The opposite, meaning that patients were less likely to die while the doctors were away. But only, we should point out, for certain high-risk patients in certain kinds of hospitals. Jaina and his colleagues looked at teaching hospitals and non-teaching hospitals. The assumption is that teaching hospitals have more of the type of cardiologists who are likely to attend conferences, but that's only a hunch. And that is where Jaina found the surprise in his data. In non-teaching hospitals, the conference didn't seem to matter. But patients who were admitted for cardiac arrest to a teaching hospital during one of the cardiology conferences were roughly 10 percentage points more likely to survive than if they were admitted on non-conference dates. Patients with heart failure, again, at teaching hospitals, were 8 percentage points more likely to survive during a cardiology conference. High-risk heart failure. What we found is that if you're hospitalized uh, on a cardiology meeting date, your mortality is about 17% at 30 days, 17 to 18%. Whereas if you're hospitalized just a few days before or a few days after, your mortality is closer to 25%. So that's a very large difference. Wow. 
It just sounds so absurd. I mean, I've read the paper. I know what you're going to say, but it still sounds so absurd. So basically, if I have a major heart condition and someone gets me to a good teaching hospital, I live in New York. My hospital is Columbia Presbyterian. That's a great teaching hospital. You're saying that I have a better chance of surviving if there's a cardiology conference going on and some of the top cardiologists are not there. That's correct. Oof. Okay. And describe for me overall the magnitude of this effect compared to, let's say, you know, standard cardiology treatment, whether it's beta blockers or statins, angioplasty, stents, how much better off are you by having those interventions than you are by just simply going to the hospital when the cardiologists are not there? So just to give you a sense, the the mainstays of treatment for heart disease are beta blockers, statins, aspirin, uh, for some individuals a blood thinner like Plavix, If you were to combine all those therapies together, we're probably talking about reducing your mortality by about two to three percentage points. Wow. Percentage points. Okay. And here you're talking about eight percentage points in one case and 10 percentage points in another. Exactly. So these treatments are very effective, but they're not nearly as large in magnitude as what we're finding here. Another finding in Jaina's paper, while patients with cardiac arrest and heart failure were less likely to die during a cardiology conference, there was no difference in outcome for patients who were admitted with a heart attack. The study did find, however, that these patients received far less invasive treatment, stents and angioplasties, for instance, when many cardiologists were away. So an angioplasty is a procedure in which a balloon is inflated in one of the arteries that supply the heart. It basically opens up the blood vessel that was clogged. That is different than stenting. Stenting is a procedure in which an actual stent is placed in the heart and opens up the artery, and it it keeps the artery open. There's nearly a third reduction in rates of angiopathy slash stenting during meeting days. And remember, in heart attacks, we didn't find any difference in mortality. And so at the very least, What this would suggest is that, look, we're able to reduce these procedures by about a third, and yet we see no difference in mortality in heart attacks. What does the empirical research say about the efficacy of, say, angioplasty? In other words, we hear about these invasive treatments, angioplasty and stenting and so on, and and we, the public, like to think that if doctors have gone to the trouble and researchers have gone to the trouble to come up with these things, of course they work really well, not only to come up with these things, but to use these things and to build for these things and so on. But talk to me for a moment about what we actually know or maybe don't know about the efficacy of such interventions. These the interventions, for example, stenting uh, or angioplasty, are extraordinarily effective. I think if you look at the Uh, interventions that have been developed in the last 30 years for heart disease, they rank uh, at the highest in terms of their innovativeness and their effectiveness. And most of the patients for whom these interventions have been studied have been what I would characterize as average to moderate risk patients. There have been some studies with very severe uh, coronary artery disease, very sick patients for whom these interventions have been studied. And, And even in those studies, they do find average benefits Uh, for these procedures. So by and large, I think if you were to look at this study without any information about the results, you would think to yourself, by lowering rates of these invasive procedures, we are likely to harm patients. But as we know, that's not what the study found. 
Jaina admits that given the data, it's impossible to point to an exact cause. The strongest limitation of the paper is that we can't tell you exactly what's going on. So what I can tell you with as close to certainty is that something is happening in the hospitals that is responsible for the lower mortality on meeting days. And keep in mind, it's not as if there are no cardiologists in hospitals during annual meetings. Some docs cover for others. More junior staff might take over for a few days. Jaina suspects that the doctors who stay behind may be more cautious. What we're identifying is that group of patients for whom the cardiologists who were left behind may have thought to themselves, this person may not be appropriate for this procedure. And the clinical decisions that they're making are different now. And they could be different in a way that actually improves outcomes because they're restricting procedures for those who are at the margin, who would be least likely to benefit. And your explanation would be that these are docs who are covering, who might be more junior or whatnot, and they are less likely to order up what a more senior, confident, experienced doctor might order up? Is that one explanation? That's one explanation. Uh, Another explanation could be that the covering doctor says to himself or herself, look, I don't want to do this thing because I'd, I'd be better off not harming the patient by doing the procedure. Why don't I just wait and see what happens? Simply because this is not my patient. I'm covering the patient for somebody else. And this, Jaina says brings us to the less is more dictum in medicine, which, he notes, is not universally embraced. The perception of healthcare is that by doing more, we can improve health. And what we need to recognize is that so much of healthcare, so many of the clinical decisions that we make operate in this gray zone. It's not black and white. And it could very well be the case that in the gray, less may be more. Could it be that, you know, the doctors who are most likely to attend these conferences are those who are involved in research um, and that they perhaps aren't as good at clinical care and the ones who are left behind are maybe better? Is that a possible explanation? That's a possible explanation. I think the reason that we find our results predominantly in teaching hospitals is because if you look at the fraction of academic cardiologists who attend these meetings and you look at the fraction of community cardiologists who attend these meetings, I think the, the share would be larger among academic cardiologists. We haven't been able to get any great data from the American College of Cardiology or American Heart Association, but whatever data they do publish online would support that. And so that's why it's not surprising that we saw the effects there. I'm curious, Dr. Jaina, have you heard from either the American Heart Association or the American College of Cardiology, the two conferences that you measured? Not formally. I think the American College of Cardiology released a statement uh, which is very well worded. It basically said it's reassuring to know that during dates of national cardiology conferences, our patients receive no worse care, (laughs) which is technically true. Technically true. But I could see this being, uh, I could see them playing it either way. They could take it as an indictment that they are, you know, they represent a bunch of people who don't contribute to better care. On the other hand, they could say, hey, you know, our conference is a major lifesaver. We draw away all these people who are doing too many procedures, and that's saving a lot of lives. So, But I can't imagine they'll turn that into their slogan, would you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I've tried to advocate that to my own chair to let me go to more conferences, but that hasn't worked. <laughs> Discover why critics are calling... Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! 
It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We did ask the two organizations to respond to Jaina's study. Richard Chazal is the American College of Cardiology, or ACC's, vice president and a practicing cardiologist. I think many of us were actually were reassured that there wasn't an increase uh, in risk during those meetings because many people had hypothesized that that might be the case, that, that uh, when there was a a departure of some physicians that the staffing levels could result in an increased risk. So I do think it's reassuring to to the public and to you and to me that we can safely get our care at a teaching hospital during periods of time of meetings. So that part is encouraging. Pretty much as expected. Dr. Shazal did add this, however. This is important and interesting information. The biggest concern here and the one that we have to look at is this finding and uh, to try and tease out, if we can in the future, why that is and how we modify our behaviors so that we have a lower risk at all times. The American Heart Association, meanwhile, sent us a recorded response from its president, Dr. Elliot Antman. We weren't allowed to interview him. Dr. Antman says there is no evidence of cause and effect in Jaina's study and that we should essentially think of it as a calendar analysis. So the investigators happened to analyze the period of time when cardiology meetings were occurring. They could have picked Christmas. They could have picked New Year's or Easter. We know that there are changes in the staffing schedule when there are holidays, when there are important national cardiology meetings. Bottom line for uh, us at the American Heart Association, there's nothing in this study that we see that uh, would lead us to recommend a change in clinical practice. In my interview with Jaina, I had raised the same point. Okay, is it possible that these cardiology conferences are perhaps typically held at the same time of year every year, which might be a time of the year that coincides with lower mortality? That's definitely possible, but, you know, as it turns out, over the nearly... 10 years that we looked at the data, the cardiology conferences actually varied in their time. So it wasn't that they were always at the same time in the year. They actually do vary slightly from week to week across the 10 years. Right. I'm curious, has there been any uh, similar research with psychologists or other mental health professionals? I'm wondering if anyone's ever looked at suicide and or hospitalization or even depression outbreaks, if such a thing can be measured during psychiatric conferences or maybe even just during August when all the shrinks in New York go to Cape Cod? 
No, that, that's a great question. I'm not aware of any, and I actually looked into this to see whether or not there was anything that was done. It's something that we're going to do if it hasn't been done after exhaustive search. But uh, it's a great it's a great example. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another example of something that we have actually looked at, which we do know data about, and I'm sure you've heard about, it, is this July effect. It's the idea that uh, patients who are hospitalized in academic medical centers in July have worse outcomes uh, because the uh, residents who are there inexperienced. And by and large, what this literature has found is that the July effects, if they happen, are very small. And the question for clinicians was always, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that something that every clinician thinks to be a big issue turns out to not be a big issue when you look at the data? And what we, the insight that we had was that, you know what, every patient who comes in the hospital is different. And for most patients, it really does take a lot to, to lead to an adverse outcome. And so what happens if you focus on those patients who are the most sick? And what we did is look at the same kind of group of patients. We looked at patients who had heart attack, who were in the top third of predicted mortality. And, and these patients have a mortality rate of about, as I said, 25 to 30%. And what you see is that for those patients, there actually is a July effect. So if you're hospitalized in a teaching hospital with a very severe heart attack, you are five percentage points more likely to die if you're hospitalized in July versus May. So basically 25% mortality versus 20% mortality. So it's a large effect. Of course, it goes in the opposite direction of what we're saying here in the, in the sense that less is worse. But you know, that's one example of people looking at what happens around specific times of year or specific types of practices. How do you account for that contradiction? I think the contradiction is, is going to be what, what is the clinical decision that's being made? So I, I keep on coming back to this in my mind. Like, why is this happening? And all I can come down to is I think that cardiologists are just making different clinical decisions during non-meeting dates. And I think the decision that's being made is, is this patient appropriate for a procedure? Because whenever you do something, you have to have your mind, is this person good or bad for it? And let me give you another example. If a cardiologist had... 100 procedures to allocate, and that's all they could do, I'm fairly confident that each one of the people that they allocated that 100 procedures to would do extraordinarily well. They'd have a beneficial outcome. But there's no constraint like that in reality. So you can go to the 101st, 102nd. That's such an interesting way to think about it, and it makes me think that the economist part of your brain is intruding on the medical part of your brain there. And I wonder if you're leading to some kind of relationship between cost and treatment and availability and supply and demand and so on. So do you think that's, forget about just cardiology for a moment, do you think that's a major component of adverse outcomes that we're looking at generally, including just, you know, um, the fact that we spend more, uh, a larger share of our GDP than any other country on earth, I believe, for healthcare, and yet our outcomes are super suboptimal. How much do you think that is due to a kind of endless, <laughs> almost an endless supply and a, a relatedly very high demand? You know, I think the common concern is that because doctors are paid fee for service, meaning they get paid for every procedure that they do, that it leads to over incentives uh, for them to do procedures. I'm actually not convinced that that is really the root of all of the quality problems that we find. My hunch is that the reason that uh, physicians may be doing more procedures than is clinically optimal is that they just don't know any differently. 
Like if you think about what is that it impacts a physician's decision? Well, sure, what they get paid impacts it just like it would impact anybody's decision. But what about where they went to medical school, what they learned during residency, whether or not they've been sued before? And most importantly, what is their level of risk aversion? I've got to imagine that that would translate somehow into clinical practice. I think that there are underlying differences in how people think, how cardiologists, would, how doctors think that drive these decisions. That was an excerpt from the 2015 Freakonomics Radio episode number 202 called How Many Doctors Does It Take to Start a Healthcare Revolution? Or Freakonomics MD episode minus one, I guess, the prequel. There are some other great interviews in it if you want to check it out. We'll put the link in the show notes. When we did that episode, the cardiology study had just come out and the findings were so strange that a lot of people, including myself, weren't sure that it could be replicated. There was also the thorny problem that the study left a lot of questions unanswered. Like, who exactly was attending these meetings? Were they people who spend most of their time doing scientific research and not seeing patients? If so, maybe that could explain why replacing them for just a few days could improve patient outcomes. Since it was published, I've gotten some answers from two different studies my colleagues and I conducted. In 2018, we studied what happens to patients who have heart attacks during the dates of a different but very specific cardiology meeting that is attended by doctors called interventional cardiologists. These are the types of doctors who specialize in procedures to treat heart attack patients. The general cardiology meetings that I'd studied initially are attended by all sorts of different cardiologists. Studying the effect of this specialized event kind of gave us a way to zoom in. And we still found that patients with heart attacks had lower mortality rates if hospitalized during the dates of an interventional cardiology meeting. We didn't see a difference in age or gender between the two groups of doctors. But here's what we could measure. The people who were going to conferences were more likely to have attended a top medical school, more likely to have received research funding from the National Institutes of Health, or led a clinical trial, and they had nearly three times as many publications on average. We can infer that since the doctors who remained behind to treat patients tended to be less specialized in research, they may be more experienced and specialized in patient care. And I thought maybe that's what's happening in both studies. Patients may do better during these big conferences because it means they're even more likely to be treated by those cardiologists who are oriented towards hands-on patient care. And here's where that new study I mentioned comes in. It was just released this week, actually. My colleagues Hiro Takakato, Yusuke Sugawa, Jose Figueroa, and I, we examined whether doctors who treat fewer patients per year have worse outcomes than doctors who treat more. We studied hospitalized medical patients because those patients typically don't choose their doctors and vice versa, which means it's a good natural experiment. And we found that those doctors who split time between seeing patients and on research, administrative roles, or other work, and so they treat fewer patients. Those patients had higher hospital mortality rates than those treated by doctors who were clinically more active. Now, those of you who've been following this show from the beginning 
know that I am a doctor who splits time between seeing patients and doing economics research. So I think there's value to having people working and learning across disciplines and in hybrid roles, but there may also be costs. And these follow-up studies point to something that economists and probably all of us have known for a long time, that specialization matters, practice matters. All right, folks, that's it for Freakonomics MD this week. You can find links to all the studies we mentioned at Freakonomics.com. Also, please consider following the show. If you're enjoying the show and leave us a review, you'll help introduce the show to more people. If you have thoughts on the show, shoot me an email. That's bapu at Freakonomics.com. B-A-P-U at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Freakonomics MD is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, and People I Mostly Admire. This show is produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Bapu Pod. This episode was produced by Trisha Bobita and mixed by Eleanor Osborne. Original music by Andrew Edwards. Our staff also includes Allison Criglow, Greg Rippin, Joel Meyer, Jasmine Klinger, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jacob Clementi, and Stephen Dubner. If you like this show or any other show in the Freakonomics Radio Network, please recommend it to your family and friends. That's the best way to support the podcasts you love. As always, thanks for listening. The Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today.